Hello. Unfortunately, only the first half of the sermon you are listening to today was recorded. The portion recorded follows this message, but we welcome you to visit the additional sermon resources at roswellchurch.com to see its full transcript. Thank you. Today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Demah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Steve. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. This is one of those Sundays where you're going to need your Bible. So if you don't have one, um, we have we have a couple of the elders. If you'll pass out some of these Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter one, and we're going to be buzzing about the chapter. So it'd be really helpful if you had the scriptures in front of you. So if you'd like a Bible, just raise your hand, and someone will hand one to you. Um, as Steve just read, we are in uh, the book of Acts. We started uh, a study in uh, in this book, and this is uh, this is an amazing book. It marks some of the most incredible times in, in history. It captures the birth of the church and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the spread of the gospel, the resurrected Jesus Christ from, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and eventually it will cover the entire world just by the end of this book. Scripture, and this scripture in particular, though, then becomes a bit intriguing because this is one of those passages in the, in the Bible that at first blush seems to be very straightforward. It seems to have kind of a, a, 
inconsequential nature to it. It appears to be a, um, like a housekeeping section of the Bible, the kind of thing that we maybe just read through and go, that was, that was nice. We have these, these waiting disciples uh, who apparently they have some extra time on their hands. And so, you know what, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and pick up a 12th apostle because we've we got extra time. 11's not good, so let's go with 12. And, and so it seems like what, what's, what's, actually, what's actually going on here? There's um, this huge event that just took place where, where, where Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, appears and then ascends in front of their very eyes. This huge moment, book of Acts, yeah. And, and just in a little bit, like next chapter, there's going to be this other unprecedented event that takes place where the Spirit of God comes and pours himself out over all of his disciples. Unprecedented, big event. And then you have this section, this the surprisingly mundane interlude. What is it about? Well, I got good news for you. I believe and I hope through the grace of God to show you this morning that there's a ton in these verses that you may otherwise have not seen or known. So um, let me just ask you, are, are you, are you ready? You feeling ready? Are you excited? Are some of you just ready? That's, that's fine too. That's fine. We can, we'll, we'll go with ready. As I said, uh, the disciples in this section are waiting. This is, this is an entire portion of, of Scripture where you have the community of believers, this newly formed hodgepodge of what will be called Christians at one point soon, and they're waiting. Everything that takes place in this section is waiting, and they're doing so because they're obeying Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 4 that we saw last week, it says, and, and while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, that is, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this section of Scripture in, in three headings. We, we're going to talk about what is, what is this band of waiters, how, how, are, they, how are they waiting? What is, what is their waiting made up of? And I believe we'll see three particular things, that is, that they are waiting that while, I'm sorry, that while they are waiting, they are united and praying. That while they are waiting, they are rehearsing the sovereignty of God. And that while they are waiting, they choose new leadership. So, first section is, while they are waiting, they are united and praying. It says that they are together. The apostles, the disciples, up to 120. There's Jesus' mother, his brothers, the women. There's a whole cadre of folks, and they are, Scripture says, together. They didn't scatter once the ascension took place. They didn't go about their own business. There was this interconnectivity, this interindependence that would become more and more apparent as we move through the book of Acts, especially at Pentecost. But at this point, there is a belief that the gathered saints, that the power of the, of the gathered saints, what, what is offered there is more significant, has an essential element that is more significant than the scattered saints. And they're not just together, they're unified. The verse says that they are of one accord. That means that they, they're on the same page. They're about the same thing. They're, they're focused in the same direction. Namely, to trust and follow this Jesus who has ascended, who's given them clear direction and is about to give them power. That they would respond to whatever and wherever he would lead them. So first, we see them, they're together, that they're unified, but they're also, they're praying. They're devoting themselves to prayer. Now, prayer 
in preparation for and in anticipation for God leading, for God bringing about something new, for God transforming something, for God bringing clarity to something is one of those sub-themes that shows up all the way through the book of Acts. We'll see it multiple times. Repeatedly, we see the apostles, the, some of the church leaders. Uh, we'll see some of the disciples gathered together in intentional and purposeful prayer. We find that these early followers are already on their knees. And what are they doing? Well, they're asking, they're, they're confessing, they're, they're longing together, they're, they're praising God, they're, they're thanking him, they're wondering with him, they're interceding for one another, they're praying. But they're not just praying, they're, it says they're devoted to prayer. Not simply praying in, in passing, but a committed extended periods, repeated occasions of prayer, sometimes set aside times and some just impromptu bursts of prayer. One of my favorite things about being part of the elder board that serves here at Roswell Community Church is um, that we are called to pray. And so we pray because it is actually one of the responsibilities and roles of the, of, of the elders. And we pray for you and we pray for our church and pray for our community and we pray for one another. Uh, but one of the awesome things is every once in a while there's, um, there's tension let's say, in a discussion. Or maybe, maybe there's a sense of like, uh, we can't seem to find the way forward. And in the discussion, we're kind of going in circles, round and round. And more times than not, we'll rumble, we'll usually just start praying. And I don't mean like, hey guys, I think we should pray, which is, you know, the Christian thing to do. You like announce what you're about to do. No, Will's not like that. He just, he's our eclectic elder. He just, he just starts praying. Like God's in the room the whole time or something, you know? Like, it's just wild. And, um, it's awesome. We've gotten so accustomed to it that it's like, well, you, you're going you're gonna to break into prayer? Like, I mean, it's time. What's beautiful about it is that it's just a cry. It's, it's, it's God. We, we seem to be stuck. Uh, Lord, like we, we, don't, we don't know the way forward. Lord, there's, there's something going on here, and, and, and there's resistance. And, and before you know it, we are together being ushered into the throne room of God. And it's beautiful. There's this sense of it's, it's natural. It, it's fitting with the natural organism and the, the natural way in which we are relating together and the fact that God is here, he's, he's present, and he wants to lead and guide us. I believe that's some of the, the fragrance of what existed in that upper room. And I just need to say this. You know, we always read the scriptures in light of the fact that we know that Pentecost is coming. But, but, but they don't know when. Now, to be fair, Jesus said, not many days from now. But, but what does not many days from now mean to Jesus? I mean, you know, this is, you know, the God of the universe who like, for one, one day is a thousand years. I mean, what is, what is a few days from now? And, and so they're in this upper room and it says they're devoted to prayer. They're, they're at day eight, not going like, no, but seriously, is this going to happen or, or what's going on? It's going to be 10 days between, between the Ascension and, and Pentecost, according to the calendar. Um, but they don't know and, and they remain in prayer. They remain devoted. And uh, one of the things that maybe you hadn't thought about, I hadn't thought about it until I was studying this passage is, this is maybe the first time where they're praying in Jesus' name. These, these are Jews. These are Hebrews, right? They, they, they've, they've grown up praying. They're praying the Shema. They're praying all kinds of things. But they, they just learned from Jesus in the upper room, when you pray, you're going you're gonna to use my name. You're going to pray in my name. And, wh and whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will grant you. They're having to learn to pray. Obviously, earlier in, in the scriptures, you see the disciples hearing Jesus pray and say, 
clearly, you pray in a way that we don't pray. Will you teach us how to pray? They're learning still to pray as they begin to pray in Jesus' name. And they actually find themselves praying to Jesus. You see in verse 24, Paul, Peter actually says, Lord, you, Lord, are the one who knows. Lord, you, you, Lord, the risen Christ. They're praying to the risen Christ. Like that, that had never happened in the history of the world. But they knew that Christ was interceding on their behalf at that moment. It puts a special kind of, for some reason, it puts like a special little glow around this moment. That something new is being birthed, that, that the Trinity has been excited about for a long time, that these disciples would know to pray in Jesus' name, as we now do all the time. So, so what are you waiting for? Not like, what are you waiting for? No, what, what are you waiting for? Some of us I know in this room are, are, are waiting to get married. Some are waiting to finally graduate. Some of you are waiting to, to have your first child. Others of you are, are waiting so you can have your next child. Some are, are waiting for a new career or just any career. Some of you are, are waiting for test results right now. Some of you are, are waiting for a new season to start, and some of you are waiting for a wearisome and tiresome season to come to an end. Some of you want relief, and, 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 and some of us are just waiting for something else, just anything else. Uh, Becky and I are entering a, a season of, of, of waiting. Uh, we've been in a season of waiting as we anticipate our first grandchild, and uh, that's had a certain kind of waiting. Um, but we're entering a, a different one. Uh, this morning, our, my son took off for Iraq for nine, nine months, and, uh, and we're, we're having to learn to wait until he returns. And so, so our, our prayer is going to have to be affected by that. It, it, it will be affected. Our thoughts will be affected by that. Our, our worship is affected by that as we, as we pray. What are you waiting for? And, and maybe more significant than what are you waiting for is how are you waiting? What is the disposition of your heart while you wait? Are you waiting alone? Or, or are you waiting together? Are, are you, is your heart united and of one accord with, with other brothers and sisters who, though imperfectly, are also leaning into God to bring courage and, and, and speak words of life into you as you also speak words of life into them? How are you waiting? And, and, and is your waiting marked by prayer? What would it be like for us who are waiting to be devoted to prayer, to, to set aside intentional moments, intentional periods, uh, to some of us to learn how to pray? There's some of you who struggle and just, you just don't know how. And, and there's a great book, uh, a uh, Praying Life by Paul Miller, which is maybe the best book on prayer I, I've read. There's lots of great books on prayer. It's one of the best ones as far as accessibility. I think it's terrific. If you, if you don't know how to pray, be like the disciples. Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. We must learn to pray while we wait. What would it look like for... For us to choose intentional moments and spontaneous moments, to, 
to seize moments with our spouse or our friends or, or even to bring our kids around it. To say, hey, we're, we're waiting on this and, and we don't know how long. And we don't know what it's going to take. We don't know how it's even going to unfold. But, but let, us, let us wait together. And let us wait in conversation with our Lord. You, Lord. May God give us the longing to pray as we wait. And an attentiveness to his spirit that, that, that when the spirit says, stop, kneel, pray, wait with me, that we would follow his leading. So while they waited, they, um, they waited unified, united, and, and praying. They also waited, um, while they were waiting, they, they rehearsed the sovereignty of God. They rehearsed the sovereignty of God. What does that mean, Matt? Look at verse 16. Peter stands up and he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy, Spe- Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, I want to take a moment. He's talking about Judas here, and the, and the verses that follow are, are a parenthesis by Luke to kind of explain to his reader readers what actually unfolded, because a Obviously, he's writing to Jewish, to, uh, to Gentile readers, and they maybe didn't know what happened with Judas, and so he gives that little parenthesis that you see in there, where it talks about, you know, Judas turning and then eventually his guts bursting open, you know, which is great devotional reading, as you can imagine, especially with your children at bedtime. Um, but uh, I just want to take a moment here to, to take an aside. One of the things I love about the scriptures is that they, there's no shying away from the messy you ever think about that? One of the, the unique things about Christianity and about the holy scriptures is that they don't apologize for the, it's not ashamed of the broken and, the, and sometimes the embarrassing. Scriptures are not embarrassed. Peter here says, yeah, we're, we're witnesses of this. Tells honestly without shame of the weaknesses and the, and the failures of God's followers. And that begins in Genesis and it goes all the way through the New Testament. We're about to have this incredible moment with, with Peter in the next couple of weeks where he is just bringing it. 3,000 people turn to Christ. And I mean, it's like, Peter. I mean, it's like he is, he's got it going on. Uh, but we find out later on that, that, that Peter gets all shied away and, and, and turns away and Paul has to rebuke him. It's like, it's a broken dude. And the Bible doesn't shy away to be like, yeah, that guy who's like the pillar of the church, the center, yeah. Yeah, the dude, he cowered it out, and he became all racist against the Gentiles. And Yeah, that's true. And, and the reason why, and this is one of the beautiful things, is that the reason why, I mean, okay, just think of it this way. Imagine you're trying to start a religion, and, and, and part of your starting religion is to be able to tell the fact that one of its founding members snuck around, got a bunch of money, betrayed its leader unto death for 30 coins of silver, and then out of remorse hung himself. Now that is a story to start a faith, right? I mean, that's like that's the worst marketing brochure ever. <laughs> and yet, right here, like right at the beginning, Peter is declaring, yeah, this is, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly how it unfolded. There's, a, there's an unapologetic nature. And the reason that that's true and that why God is, just doesn't apologize for being able to show some of the main characters of Scripture as such broken people is that all of Scripture is pointing to the one who's not broken. It's, it's all pointing to the one who is actually the character that we're all longing for. Everything's pointing to Jesus. And so, of course, all of these are, well, they're just shadows and they're, 
They're the very reason why Jesus must come and must rescue and must save. One who had come and die for ragtag misfits all the way throughout Scripture and one who has come to die and die for the ragtag misfits that I'm looking at right now. Thank you, Lord. But that was my little aside. Verse 16 says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, Peter says. Peter's first declaration to this group of new disciples says, everything that happened took place according to what God had established and planned. This happened as God had purposed it. He's been in total control. That's why we don't have to apologize or be embarrassed about what what Judas did because it wasn't an accident what Judas did. It was under the complete sovereignty of God. The betrayal of Jesus and, and his crucifixion both happened because God had planned it. And God was carrying out his mission as he is still carrying out his mission today. And, and he does so unthwarted. Kevin DeYoung, pastor and writer, he said, There are three things that we must believe in order to live happily in the world and in order to have hope for the world. First, that everything God promises is true. Second, that everything God purposes will come to pass. And third, that everything that is, is according to God's providence. How can we be, as, as Paul says um, in 2 Corinthians, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor and yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything, unless we know that everything God purposes is true, that, that he hasn't misled us, that everything that he has promised is true, and secondly, that everything that he purposed will come about, that that we can count on God doing the things that he said he was going to do. That we can count on God doing the things that he said he was going to do. How can we be these things unless we know that everything that is, is according to God's providence? That, that nothing in our lives that's in the world is left up to some kind of random chance that nothing is out of control, and that somehow it is therefore well. Judas's betrayal and his replacement is according to the scriptures. Nothing has been left to chance. This was not plan B. This was God's purposes. It's, it's not a mistake. The bribe, the kiss, the soldiers, the scourge, the nails, all of it was because the scriptures had to be fulfilled according to God's good and his purposeful and his redemptive plan. And, and here's the good news. If you're looking right now at the chaos in your own life or, or at some of the heartache that exists in you or that you see in some of the people that you love, if you take stock of, of what you dreamed and thought life was going to be like and then you compare it to how life actually is, and you find yourself uncertain about what that means, that life is, is harder than you expected, more wearying and, and more futile than you had anticipated, you may find yourself tempted to think, if, if that's all you're looking at, that surely this can't be God's plan. 
Something has, been, something has been thwarted along the way. And maybe it's my fault. Maybe it's someone else's fault. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just chance, which, of course, Peter here is saying there is no such thing. No, instead, Peter is rehearsing with these 120 before the Spirit comes. And, and in so doing, he's rehearsing that with us today to remember that, that Judas was God's plan. That Judas was God's plan just as much as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was God's plan. And it sounds like madness if you think about it. That it was because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. By looking at Judas's betrayal and at the cross, what it does, looking at them honestly as God's purpose, is that it galvanizes us once again, to believe that God, God has a plan for you, for your family, for, for your life, for, for all that isn't right now. That he is not wasting it. His perfect purposes will play themselves out. And that they will be according to the Lord. Well, while they're waiting, they're united in prayer and they're and Peter, through his words, is rehearsing the sovereignty of God. And lastly, while they're waiting, they, they choose new leadership. Why, um, why does Judas need to be replaced? You ever wondered about that? Why? What's wrong with 11? Right? I mean, I, there's, a, there's a great number 11 right here. <laughs> too, too, too soon? Just too soon? Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <clears throat> so clearly there's nothing wrong with 11. And everyone's just a little bruised between Georgia and it's a lot of bruising, I understand. So I was, that was dangerous to do, so. It's <laughs> still dangerous to do, right? <laughs> right? So, so why? Why did you just have to be replaced? Well, here's why. You look at verse 17, it says that Judas was allotted his share in this ministry. There's um, someone needs to be assigned the share of ministry that had been given to Judas. It's like, it's like stock options in, in a startup. Like, well, this one ran away. And so there, there's a, there was a responsibility. There's a, there's a mantle to be handled, to be to be. To be, to be cared for, and, and someone needs to fill that mantle. Someone else needs to take up what Judas forfeited. Secondly is um, Jesus had made this declaration when he was with the disciples that, that the 12 would sit on 12 thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. Obviously, 11 is not 12. But what was Jesus doing there? And, and in and in many other ways too. He, in some ways, Jesus here is he's reconstructing what it means to be Israel, what it means to be God's people. He told them that, Jesus speaking, that, that the new temple was now going to be, be in you. I'm going to be in you through the Holy Spirit. That Jesus says, I'm going to be the new Torah. I'm going to be the new law. And that, that new sacraments and and then a new covenant's going to be made, and it's going to be made in, in my blood. And that the, the true Israelite, the true child of the promise, is going to be one 
one that is so by faith in Christ alone, not because of pedigree, not because of race, not because of circumcision. He's reconstituting a, a new Israel. The reason Judas is replaced in his apostolic role is, is, because, is because of his apostasy. It's not because Judas is dead that he has to be replaced. That there was a mantle that needed to be, that needed to be handled and led out in the, in the beginning of the church that, that someone had to hold. And the reason we know this is because James, in a few chapters after, after the church is launched, is going to be the first martyr, at least that we know of. James is the brother of John, one of the three that hung out with Jesus. He's going to be one of the first martyrs. He's going to be killed by the sword. And, but the church doesn't replace him. There, there's, this is not the proof text for apostolic succession, from, from Peter to Pope to Pope to Pope. That, that's not what this passage is saying. The only apostolic succession is, is the succession of the gospel which the apostles preached, and which now, through us, is, is proclaimed to everyone and everywhere. So he had to be replaced, not because he was dead, but because of the apostasy. And so there's, there's two requirements that surface out of this passage for who's going to replace Judas. Verse 21 and 22, if you look at them, say, okay, this has to be someone who's been with us from the beginning. It has to be someone who from A to Z has been a part of what Jesus was doing. It's, it's someone who was there on the shore of the Jordan when John the Baptist baptized Jesus and the Father spoke and the, and the dove descended. And the Trinity is present. Someone needs to be there, that part of the apostles who was there in that moment. And, and, then, and, and also one who was along for the miracles and someone who, who got to see every single thing that Jesus taught and heard, heard them. Had to be someone who was with them from the beginning. And also had to be someone who was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Peter makes that very clear. So it has to be someone who saw Jesus alive, the resurrected Jesus, because the primary role of the apostle is going to be to say, he's alive and I saw him. Oh, and, and, and we all saw him, and I'm just going to say it over and over and over again until I die. That's one of the roles of the apostles, and therefore he had to be someone, had to be someone who had been a witness to the resurrected Jesus. You see, the apostles had a unique role as a foundational element for the church. We need someone who's seen him, who's seen everything, and who's seen him alive. And so two guys fit the bill. Now, it appears that probably were more it says in verse 23, and they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. That verse has always stood out to me. What is Luke doing? What, what's the point? Nothing's an accident. Luke makes lots of intentional decisions with his wording and with his language. He's going, uh, Joseph. No, no, not just any Joseph. Joseph, who also goes by Barsabbas, who, oh yes, some of you call him, some of you call him, that guy, that guy. I don't want you to miss at all which one, it's that guy, right? That, that justice. I want to be very clear about who this is. It's as though God through Luke is, is making the point of identifying with abundant clarity the one who will not be chosen. 